what works in the short term won't necessarily work in the long term. So lots of people are getting lured in by intermittent fasting stacked with keto because someone is selling the idea of losing 15 pounds in two weeks or mm -hmm. something like that, which I've actually seen recently. And they're getting lured in with that short term promise. But not many people stop and think, well, hang on, do I want to go on a diet that tells me how much weight I will lose in two weeks? What happens 12 months from now? What happens 24 months from now? So coaches like myself and, and yourselves, you know that coaching people over the long term is important. Mm -hmm. Stop jumping onto overly restrictive diets, realizing that you hate your life and then stopping, going back to what you were doing before, regaining weight and then repeating that cycle. It's the equivalent of starting a New Year's resolution every January. Whereas what we're saying is stop doing things that are super restrictive that you can only maintain in the short term and focus on what you can do in the long term rather than going on and off this kind of ideological diet bandwagon. Welcome to Cut the Crap with Beth and Matt, the world's number one no bullshit health and fitness podcast. Are you ready to cut the crap with your diet and exercise, get strong as fuck and build a healthy relationship with food? Then you've come to the right place. Let's, Let's go. If you'd like to support us in the podcast, join our Patreon where you get exclusive content, which consists of monthly workouts you can do at home or at the gym, monthly challenges that are either strength, habit, or mindset-based, and access to over 100-plus low-calorie, high-protein, family-friendly meals. These are all designed by a professional chef who is certified in nutrition. These recipes are already in my fitness pal for easy fucking tracking. New recipes are also added each week. We believe that fitness is for everyone. So this is our way of getting you started on your health and fitness journey at a price most everyone can afford. So what the fuck are you waiting for? We'll see you in the Patreon. Hello, Ben. Hey, man. Ben, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for coming on. It is my pleasure. So we are chatting with Ben Carpenter today. Ben, you are a phenomenal dude. Um, we, <laughs> we, we appreciate you coming on today. We just want to talk a little bit today, bullshit with you, have a conversation. You know, we, we, we've got a book coming up that we definitely want to talk about. Um, but before we get into that, you want to give us a quick elevator pitch uh, of yourself and give uh, the audience a quick introduction? Sure. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for everyone listening. I am very simply, I'm a personal trainer. I've been a personal trainer since I was 18. I think 18, just turning 19 and I'm 35 now. So I've spent my entire adult life working in the fitness industry and a large chunk of that has been making content on social media. As you both are very aware, the fitness industry is full of misinformation and charlatans trying to take people's money. And that has made a lot of social media ammunition for me to try and create content to help keep people safe. So that's it. I don't really have a, a lot of praises to sing about myself. I'm just a personal trainer that has been in the industry a long time. There you go. When did you get um, started in making uh, social media content? 2009. Oh, so I've been, I've been making social media content for just over, I think, 13 years, 14 years now. So originally, when I was personal training people face-to-face, -face, my original content was just filming exercises. Mm -hmm. So... That way, if a client said to me, hey, I, I forgot how to do a Bulgarian split squat, I just send them a link to the video I put on YouTube. No explanation, just a demonstration. So it was easier for people to um, remind themselves what solid technique looked like. And then over time, when I started on Facebook, uh, more and more people were asking me questions. So 
every time a shit news story hits the headlines like this food makes people die or diet soda makes people gain weight or whatever people would ask me questions about that and i would post up responses so that then turned into making longer videos on youtube and then instagram and then tiktok and i've basically been uh, fighting bullshit for nearly 14 years maybe 14 years exhausting uh yeah it's like it feels like swimming upstream but the stream is just bullshit it's it's like it grows and the stream becomes uh harder and harder to swim in and social media is growing and the amount of misinformation to reply to is constantly growing and it just it feels like an uphill battle i know you two know exactly what it's like just when i think i i haven't seen it all (laughs) or i've seen it all i'm like are you fucking serious what is the craziest let's say fitness myth nutrition myth that you've seen lately I get tagged in several videos every day to the point that I can't even look at all the videos that I'm tagged in. Recent ones this week, there were claims that a government were telling people that Lucky Charms were healthier than steak. I know you two have seen that. Oh, that one made its waves. Yeah. I've seen again this week, diet soda is terrible for weight loss. That's another big one. Um, I mean, I feel like there are so many fitness myths, it's almost hard to pick one. Yeah, truly. Yeah, whether it's fasted cardio or keto diets or intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding or whatever, we're just surrounded by them all the time. Yeah, the, the time-restricted feeding right now is, I think, probably mo- one of the most prevalent that I'm seeing. We get so many questions about that whenever we do a Q&A. Me. It's like, how many different ways can we say it that, it, that it's not, nothing magical about it, you know? So I, I have a theory on this, and part of the theory is because... I've been looking at top selling diet books, just part and parcel of the time course of what I'm doing. And I didn't realize how many fasting books are on sale. I know it sounds really stupid because we, we perhaps, I don't want to speak for you two, but we perhaps are used to social media misinformation and actual books and things. I don't tend to look at that often. I don't tend to look and see what's selling. The number of intermittent fasting and time restricted feeding diets at the moment is crazy. Whether it's like the fast 800 diet or fasting combined with keto. It's just, it's, in my opinion, it's a, a fashion trend that has lured a lot of people in. Uh, there is some promise. There is some interesting research literature. There's some interesting research literature that stemmed from animals, which got people really excited. A lot of them didn't tell people that it was in animals and they made everyone seem like it would work brilliantly in humans and a lot of it didn't pan out. But I feel like intermittent fasting, fasting protocols, time-restricted feeding and keto are the the biggest trends at the moment, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. When, when we're seeing the two diets kind of combined, the two ways of eating, intermittent fasting and keto, it's like, <laughs> why do we have to make this Frankenstein of a diet just to accomplish our health and fitness goals? It just, to me, it just seems asinine. And I know it does to you as well, but like where, I don't know, how has it become so complicated? Like fat loss and health and fitness. I know money talks, of course, and the books, you know, uh, are a big part of that. My theory, one of my theories with this is if you wanted to sell a diet book, it is much easier to say this is the revolutionary diet that everyone should follow. It is simple. It's attention grabbing. It's the equivalent of a newspaper headline. It's easy to lure people in with something shiny. 
Hence a lot of diet books picking one specific diet type and saying, here is the new, newest revolutionary thing, like fasting combined with keto. Neither of those are new, but suddenly stacking them both together looks more exciting than either of them on their own, apparently. And I think a lot of this is allowed to breed and it's allowed to grow because the end consumer doesn't realize that all of these diets work equally, or at least similarly, all diets will result in weight loss, at least in the short term, as long as they're calorie controlled. Right. And what people don't realize is that what works in the short term won't necessarily work in the long term. So lots of people are getting lured in by intermittent fasting stacked with keto because someone is selling the idea of losing 15 pounds in two weeks or mm -hmm. something like that, which I've actually seen recently. And they're getting lured in with that short-term promise. But not many people stop and think, well, hang on, do I want to go on a diet that tells me how much weight I will lose in two weeks? What happens 12 months from now? What happens 24 months from now? So coaches like myself and, and yourselves, you know that coaching people over the long term is important. Mm -hmm. Stop jumping onto overly restrictive diets, realizing that you hate your life, and then stopping, going back to what you were doing before, regaining weight, and then repeating that cycle. It's the equivalent of starting a New Year's resolution every January. Whereas what we're saying is stop doing things that are super restrictive that you can only maintain in the short term and focus on what you can do in the long term rather than going on and off this kind of ideological diet bandwagon. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, I, I try to tell people, let's focus on your health, right? Rather yeah. than the fat loss part, because when you start focusing on your actual health, building new habits and replacing old habits with new ones, you're going to end up losing fat in the long term. But it's very hard for people to think long term because everyone's in this state of like, you know, swipe up and you'll get this right now. And the Amazon Prime body dropped at your instant front gratification. Door. Um, yeah, it's really so much instant gratification. So I think like, Imagine that you were a consumer and you walked into a shop and you saw two diet books and one of them went with the sales pitch that you have just gone with, which is let's improve your health. Let's look at sustainable habits in the long term. And then the one right next to it said, lose 20 pounds in a month. Most people are going to go, there's something about having a numerical goal. You're being sold a promise. I can lose 20 pounds in a month. That's exciting. Whereas saying, oh, let's work on your health. It, see, it seems vague. It isn't as it isn't as attention grabbing. Mm -hmm. And like you say, working on people's health and, and focusing on health promoting behaviors is such right. a, a massive paradigm shift to how a lot of the diet industry tends to operate because mm -hmm. people are sold this promise of you can lose X number of pounds in Y days rather than thinking about is that going to improve their health long term? Are they going to be able to sustain those changes? It's kind of like... I say it's a very weight-centric approach. The idea that if you diet, you will lose weight, you will improve your health, rather than thinking, let's work on healthy behaviors that I can sustain, which will probably have an effect on how much I weigh anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. So from, from your perspective, and I know we struggle with this in our social media content, how do we try to change that narrative of the public perception of focusing on the short-term weight loss versus overall health and longevity. Because I think, I think it's a fine line between giving the, them what they want and what they need long-term is just finding that balance. I think that is a fantastic question and I wish I knew the answer to it. So <laughs> um, I, I made a, a video a few days ago on part of the reason why 
bullshit sells faster than true information. And part of that is because misinformation is allowed to be novel. If someone says, hey, I can get you to lose 50 pounds in a month, which is actually a magazine headline that I've seen recently. It was something like that. It, was, it blew my mind that that was still being put on the front cover of a magazine. People get lured into that because it's exciting. And it's very difficult to combat that when you're coming at it with a place of something that isn't as exciting. And I think we, I think we as coaches are making an inroad on social media. I think more and more people are starting to call out bullshit in the health and fitness space, especially on social media. So I think we are making progress, but we are, I feel like we're trying to, we're going into a gunfight with a knife. I think that's <laughs> kind of like the best way of, yeah. of trying to explain it. We can work really hard and it's always going to be more difficult to combat exciting misinformation that people share. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I know there was a study that was done a few years ago showing how misinformation is, tends to go more viral than evidence-based information. Did you did you make a video on that, or was that um, did you cover a different different topic just recently? Yeah, no, no, that was that was the one. I um, I originally saw a post from a friend of mine, Luke Hanna, and I kind of wanted to spread it. So the initial study it actually looked at Twitter information, so it had information on Twitter not in the health and fitness space. It was related to things like politics, world events, etc. And it used, I think it was six independent fact checkers. And they only picked topics where there was quite a firm agreement on whether something was true or false, because obviously that in itself is a, a, a hot topic. So they found all the information that was considered definitely misinformation and all the information that was considered definitely correct information. And they analyzed how quickly it spread. And they found that misinformation spread faster, wider, deeper. It penetrated people much faster than true information. Because when people see something new and exciting, they share it. Exactly the same with newspaper headlines. Newspaper headlines are often designed to be attention grabbing, not necessarily factually correct. Sometimes they play it fast and loose on the truth, but they're written in a way that are designed to lure people in. It's like mainstream media are greater riling people up and that's part of the reason that misinformation spreads so fast sure and you kind of touched on that with the lucky charms being healthier than than steak uh that just you know i think joe rogan is the one that reposted the first of all that was like a year two years old i think that that um new pyramid i guess and they were just now resurfacing that so that went really caught wildfire I mean, that, that was one of those examples where it took a lot more effort to try and combat the original post than the original post made, and it was a lot less exciting. So when people see the idea that the government have funded a research study that says Lucky Charms are healthier than steak, the new quote-unquote food pyramid, everyone lost their mind. It's like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe that the government are telling us to eat this. It's a conspiracy. They want us right. to eat Lucky Charms instead of steak. That isn't actually what happened. It was a, it was more complicated than that, and it was boring. But basically, there was a new algorithm that was trying to work out the nutrient density of certain foods, as they look at things like saturated fat and salt and nutrient ratios, phytochemicals within foods, and they tried to score how healthy foods are, which is really complicated. And even the people designing this algorithm said, in general, it works well, but we are working on it, and there are occasional instances of foods that have a high score, which we would consider not health promoting it and vice versa. And it was all it was, was a, a rebuttal to that, that had a bar chart 
that just said it can't be fully reliable because look at the scores of these foods. And they were cherry picked intentionally to show foods that we would consider not particularly healthy that were scored green and foods that we would consider healthy that were scored red. And the explanation is so much duller than the government are telling us lucky charms are healthier than steak and that's, that's part, part of the reason <laughs> the original story spread so far and the explanation i just gave was dollars dishwater it's like we get shit for telling people you know everything in moderation you can have all foods right no food is good or bad but then you have whoever out there are saying don't eat this and don't eat that they're down the cereal aisle saying that's toxic and they're like yeah yeah you're right it's it's fucking insane right I made a video response to a popular person. I, I won't say their name because it looks like I've got beef with them and I don't have beef with them at all. I got tagged on a video and someone said, it is objectively incorrect to say that foods aren't good or bad. And I made a response to that and said, that's not technically what we're saying. We know that some foods are more nutrient rich. We know that some foods are more calorie dense. Some foods are more calorie sparse. We know that there are many reasons that someone shouldn't eat loads of donuts compared to eating loads of meat, fish, vegetables, fruits, etc. Like we know all that. Right. What we're saying is that telling people that some foods are good or bad, just in very binary views, can mess people up. And the simplified version of it is in the dieting world, which is a kind of common example, people often get given lists of foods that they're not allowed to eat. These are right. bad foods. So they immediately start their diet and on Monday they're, Monday they're like, okay, here are all the bad foods that I can no longer eat. And they can do it for about two weeks before mm -hmm. it feels like they want to bang their head against a wall and go back to what they were doing before. So what we're saying, like you said, all foods fit. There are some foods you want to eat more of. There are some foods you want to eat less of. But generally speaking, telling everyone that they have to avoid these quote unquote bad foods often backfires from a long-term adherence perspective. Because if you tell a chocoholic that chocolate is bad, how long are they going to go on their chocolate-free diet before they say, fuck this, and they go back to what they were eating before? That's all we're saying. Yeah, totally. And then there's, of course, the reality that everybody responds to foods differently too. So yeah. you can't just say this food causes X result or the inflammation, where, whereas in me, I'm like, no, I'm, I feel fine eating that food and it's not you know detrimental to my health. And you could probably resonate with that a little bit too, with your own health issues that you've had in the past, right? Or that, I mean, your own health issues that you experience with, how's that impacted your, your lifestyle? Yeah, I have Crohn's disease, which is a form of inflammatory bowel disease. And there are many foods that I personally do not eat lots of because they tend to fuck my stomach up. They don't, sure. they aren't necessarily foods that I would tell other people that they cannot eat. So for example, I know that if I eat a lot of dairy, it's probably going to upset my stomach. But mm -hmm. I also know that the research on dairy doesn't say that's the case for everyone. There are health benefits of certain forms of dairy, for example. So I personally don't like saying here are the foods that I try not to eat as much of because I know people will read into it and some people will kind of copy what I'm doing and that's not worth doing. To go back to your question about Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, it is hard and I'm exhausted a lot. And generally speaking, food tends to pass through me without being too graphic. Mm -hmm. And because of that, uh, my energy levels tend to be lower. I've suffered with severe anemia in the past because I don't tend to um, absorb food as well. I've had to have iron tablets, iron infusions, things like that, just to try and keep my health at, at a certain level. But because of that, it's also 
probably the biggest reason I should make a video on this at some point is probably the biggest reason that I stay lean. And loads of people are, oh, what's, what's your secret for having a six pack or whatever? And I was like, honestly, my biggest secret is the fact that if I eat pizza and beer, I will shit my pants. It's, it's, it's very difficult to go out with friends and do the things that a lot of people do that might not be conducive to body composition goals when I know that I will get stomach pain if I do them. So whilst I will try and eat a wide variety of foods and I try not to prohibit foods too much, I also know that if I eat a lot of rich foods, it is going to upset my stomach. So it's hard to stray too far from a pretty limited diet anyway. Yeah, sure. With you, with your IB, your your Crohn's that you've had, that's actually you've ended up hospitalized from that in the past, haven't you? Yeah. So I think when I was, I think I was twenty. To be honest, at the time it's all a little bit of a blur. So I used to suffer really badly with stomach pain or kind of stomach discomfort, and then it just slowly started escalating over time. So like stomach discomfort started turning into stomach pain. Over time, I started eating less and less because my stomach was hurting. I got to the point where I was so tired that I had to stop work. I remember kind of if I saw a client for one hour, I used to have to go and lie down for an hour before I saw my next client. So I moved them from being back to back to putting an hour gap between every single client. And then it got to the point where I couldn't even handle doing that one client. It got to the point where I couldn't leave the house, got to the point where I couldn't make my own food. And my mum, who had to look after me at the time, she used to have to escort me to the toilet because I was in too much pain to walk on my own. So the worst, I think the worst example of how bad it got is I was at home for several weeks. I, could, I couldn't really leave. And um, I remember one night I was in so much pain that I tried going downstairs. You know, when you're in so much pain, you can't sleep mm-hmm. and you kind of wriggle and you roll back and you toss back and forth and you just can't sleep. And I, I got out of bed and I went downstairs and I was so weak and so frail because I'd lost 50 pounds at the time that I fell over on the stairs and even though there was a handrail in, in my mum's old house, I couldn't pull myself back up. Just regular staircase using wow. the handrail. I didn't have enough strength in my legs and my upper body just to stand up from sitting on the stairs. So I sat there and I remember calling, just like yelling for help over and over again. And uh, eventually, I think it was like two or three in the morning, eventually my brother heard it and got up and picked me up and helped me into a reclining chair that I used to spend all my hours in. And then, however long after that, at some point I got admitted to hospital. The doctors at the time hadn't diagnosed me with anything. I kept going in and out while they were running tests. Okay. And then I remember remember one day, uh, my mum took me to another medical appointment and the doctor said, just take him to emergency care. Is that what we call it in America? Emergency care. Yeah, emergency room. Yeah, yep, so yep. We, we call it A&E accident emergency. He just said, t- take him to A&E. And my mum was like, why? It's not an emergency. And the doctor said, look at him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I, I don't know what the problem is, but he, he we have to kind of have a serious intervention. At the time I weighed uh, 132 pounds. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I was very frail. So she took me to hospital and I think I stayed there for six nights in the end where they diagnosed me gave me medication. Eventually I was discharged and I kind of got back to where I am now. Rough, rough time, really rough time. Um, how long did it take you kind of to stabilize after that experience? And what is your like maintenance now for that? I was off work all in all nearly a year. 
And I remember kind of almost pushing myself back to work because the idea of going past that year mark, there was kind of a mental barrier to it. So I ended up going and working in a new gym because I, I had to get back into work. I, you know, whether I was ready or not is a kind of different question. Psychologically, I realized that I wasn't, I had been hit really hard by it. And I went back and worked in another gym and I worked there for nine months and then the same thing happened again. So I went right back to where I was before, went back to 132 pounds, had stopped working for nearly another year. Exactly the same process, like very long recovery, started building muscle again, started regaining my strength. So I took like close to a year out when I was 20 or 21. And then a year or so later, the same thing happened again. And then things have been pretty Compared to that, things have been pretty good ever since. So at some point, it's possible that I'll need to have surgery. I don't know if and when that will happen. But my consultant always said to me, if you are diagnosed early, the likelihood of having surgery at some point in your life is higher than you hope it will be. And we can do our best with medications, kind of suppress what's going on. But just just to prepare yourself. Interesting. Why is it that the earlier you're diagnosed, that the more likely you are to need surgery? I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. I don't know if it's predictive of if you have it earlier, maybe you have more of your life to deteriorate. I, I'm honestly not sure. I don't even have, I didn't even have that conversation with him. But for example, my mum has the same thing. And I think she was first ill when she was like 14. And then she probably had surgery when she was in like, uh, maybe her 40s or, or something like that. So I don't know if it's just a time course thing, like, if, if you're going to go for decades of your life and you were diagnosed early at some point, shit's going to get worse. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. But he basically said because of my age when I was first diagnosed, there's a possibility that at some point they're going to want to cut me open, which is not ideal. Cut you open. Would you have like a colostomy bag? It's possible. So they would, to start with, I think they can cut out like a little bit um, if that's necessary, if that's necessary. And then what happened with my mum is they took out a little bit and then they took out a little bit more. And then in the end, they, I think, took out her whole small bowel. I think she has a bag, which so is possible that I would need that at some point. I'm very much, this is, this is also part of the reason why I'm probably more strict with what I do than most people. So as like a bit of a tangent, when we say before, it's very difficult for people to cut chocolate out of their diet if they love chocolate. We know that like dietary restriction is hard, but there are certain people who can maintain dietary restrictions for life if their motivation is powerful enough. So for example, Muslims not eating pork, they can go their whole life not eating certain foods for religious reasons or vegans who don't eat meat. If they have a really strong ethical stance on that, some people can go their lives never touching animal products. And for me, that's, it's a powerful enough reason that makes it hard to deviate too much because even if I start eating more food, like trying to gain weight, for example, or trying to gain my, gain uh, increased body fat, because my body fat is probably, I would say unhealthily low by most people's standards. There's only so long I can do it before my body tells me that it doesn't appreciate all the extra food that I'm feeding it. So, um, it's easier for me to stay strict compared to most people. Sure. That's got to make maintaining your size and strength a real struggle for you then. Yeah. The funny thing is on, on a lot of my lifts, I've never been as strong as I was when I was 20, when I was first diagnosed. So I think when I was 20, I did a, like a 500 pound deadlift 
I wasn't like a power lifter or anything. I was just someone that lifted weights and enjoyed it. So I deadlifted 500 pounds at 20. And then after I was ill, because my joints hurt so much and I had so much inflammation in my body, it became harder to want to go back to lifting the same kind of heavy weights I did before. I don't feel like I enjoy punishing my body like I used to do that as a kid. Sense. Like I could go in the gym, not warm up, start lifting as heavy as I could lift, leave the gym. I've, I feel like, you know, when you get older and you think, my, I feel like I need to warm up more than I used to. I feel like that a lot. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't push myself in the gym anywhere near as hard as I used to. And I'm okay with that because I have a kind of perspective of longevity. I will work hard on things that I feel safe working hard on, but it's very difficult for me to think, you know what? I'm just going to try and do some deadlift one rep maxes when I know that my body tends to get aches and pains more than it used to before I was ill and when I was younger. Sure. I'm 36 and um, I, I, I'm right there with you. I, you know, I did my first powerlifting meet actually last year and I'm just not enjoying the strength training and pushing myself as much, you know, after, maybe I just got burnt out, do, you know, preparing for that. But like, yeah. I just don't know if I want to go back to deadlifting, you know, two or three times a week and squatting two or three times a week and like all the wear and tear. So I've just been using bar uh, dumbbells and, and machines for the past six months or so. And I'm really enjoying it. I think this is one of, I think this is one of those like perfect examples where finding something you enjoy is so important because when I was younger, I loved lifting heavy weights. I loved going into the gym and being like, I'm going to bench press as heavy as I can today. I'm going to squat as heavy as I can, deadlift as heavy as I can. And I still enjoy doing those things, mm -hmm. but I don't care so much about here is the weight that I lifted today because the training program that it takes for me to kind of push that. I just don't find as enjoyable as I used to. So I kind of drifted away from more powerlifting style training. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things, having the flexibility to do things you enjoy, you know, what works, you know, what doesn't, and you can implement it however you enjoy at the time. Totally. Focusing on what you can control. Right. A lot of people like you're not sitting there and drowning in, you know, the sorrows of ha having Crohn's disease and your life being different. You're navigating it which is powerful. Yeah. Like as an example to that. So I never, ever talk about my own training ever on social media, because I know that if I say, oh, my sessions are this long, I do this many sets, this many exercises. I know that some people are going to watch that thinking, should I do that number of sets? Should I train for that long? And it's very easy to look at personal trainers sometimes as assuming they're a kind of role model and they're doing something that's worth emulating. So for example, I break my workouts up into much smaller chunks than most people. Because if I used to go to the gym for say an hour and a half when I was 19, 20 years old, I don't enjoy that feeling of like smashing my body into the ground like I did then. So now I can happily go to the gym for 30 minutes and do it in kind of short blocks and leave knowing that I didn't push myself as hard, but knowing that I also feel pretty good when I leave. I'm not trying to smash my body into the floor i just don't tend to in enjoy it as much and that is my way of coping with the cards that i have been dealt mm -hmm. yeah you're listening to your body you know what you know your how your body responds and you know that if you push your body like that you're gonna be paying for it the next day most likely yeah more, more so earlier in your 20s you could get away with stuff you could train five <laughs> six seven days a week and go balls to the wall and feel fine <laughs> yeah it, may, it makes me scared to think what i'm going to be like in 20 30 years 
He'll be still crushing something. Yeah, totally. Totally. He'll be he'll be making YouTube videos still. <laughs> I'll probably making YouTube videos and like some kind of retirement sport. Maybe I'll take up golf, something like that. Hey, I love golf. There you go. <laughs> you can start giving health and fitness tips while you're on, on the back nine or something. Yeah. Um, have you ever been golfing? I went once with my brother when he lived in Australia and he's like, golfing's great. You, you get to have loads of fun with your friends. And I turned up thinking that we were going to crack open like a case of beers, have a casual afternoon on a golf course or whatever. And um, what happened is I got to the golf course and realized that uh, golfers actually take it really fucking seriously. And I felt massively out of place because all of a sudden I was just about to tee off. Bear in mind, I've never teed off in my life. And all of a sudden I'm holding a driver with no idea what I'm doing. And just before I hit, my brother said, oh, by the way, the next people tee off in seven minutes time. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, oh, we, you have to kind of keep up a pace to make sure you don't fall behind. And I was like, I've never even hit a golf ball in my life. And now you're telling me that if I'm too slow, they're going to get pissed off. It was not a fun time. Not a fun time. They definitely take it seriously. Do not do not hold up that pace to play. Yeah. Not a sport for me. No. Too slow for you, Beth? Yeah, too much walking around, too much standing there. <laughs> that's how I felt. But it, it, you get sunshine and fresh air. That's what I like about it. Yeah. Let's talk about your new book. What made you decide to write this book? Honestly, I got asked by so many people on social media at some point. I just thought maybe I should. So because I was, I was, I've been putting out social media content for so long, I actually got to the weird place where people were messaging me saying, how can I support you financially? So some people said, oh, can you set up like a Patreon account or something like that so I can pay you some somehow? And lots of people said, oh, what about doing a book? And I'd never really thought about it. Then after a while, I just thought, you know what? I could. Like I make so much social media content already on popular topics that I thought I could just make a book that contains loads of information on all those popular topics and basically do what I'm already doing, trying to educate people. And in, in some ways, it was a really natural extension of what I'm already doing because I am taking lots of research studies, trying to present it in a way that's easy for people to, people to digest and hopefully trying to help people get good results first and foremost, but also stay safe from people selling them bullshit. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, it's kind of natural extension of what I was doing. But I started writing this like three years ago. And I originally thought I'll write a book, spend six months on it, put it on my website, something like that, and sell it as an ebook. And I kind of have this obsessive tendency. And the more I got into it, the better I wanted it to be, the more I wanted to put into it. So I started off with something like 10 chapters. And then I thought, you know what, one of those chapters, it's got, it's got a side topic that I haven't really addressed as much as I want. So I bring that in. Then there was another chapter. I was like, this would be great. I should include that. Then there's another chapter I wanted to include. And I kept kind of expanding on it and expanding on it and expanding on it. And then I did a word count and most books are supposed to be, apparently I was advised 70 to 80,000 words. That's a legit book size to sell. And I did a word count on my book and it was 140,000 words. And I thought, <laughs> oh shit, <laughs> I've kind of over overshot this. And someone said to me, a friend of mine who's a literary agent said, easy, drop it in the middle and sell it as two books. He's like, 
people earn more money when they sell two editions of something because people pay twice, even if it's discounted. The overall price of two is more than one. And I just I didn't like the idea of doing it because I wanted it to be just one really good detailed book. Sure. So I hired an editor and kind of streamlined it and streamlined it and streamlined it and got to the point where I took out all of the information I thought didn't add enough value to include it and trimmed it down. And I think the total word count now is like 106,000 words. So it's still like a very, very hefty book, but it's significantly easier to read now than the encyclopedia that I kind of started off with. Yep. And that makes sense because the book is, uh, the title is what, uh, everything fat loss. Yeah. And, uh, it's, I'll be honest, there's no beating around the bush on this. I think it's a really boring title for a book. I don't mind saying that, but that's kind of part of the, I wanted the title of the book to actually tell people what it was about. So you know how, if, if you looked at the bestsellers now, it's the fast 800 plan, the fast 800 keto plan. It's lose 90 pounds in 90 days. It's lose 14 pounds in a week. It's all of those kind of attention grabbing, absolute horse shit book titles. And I just thought, I don't, I don't want to play that game. All I really want to do is make a book that contains so much information that all the most popular topics that people want to know about is in the book. So every time someone says you should do intermittent fasting, every time someone says you should do keto or fasted cardio or heart rate training, a certain heart intent uh, percentage of your, you know what I mean? Like low intensity steady state. Your, your VO2 max, you mean, or? Uh, yeah. So uh, like heart rate zone training where people say, oh, heart rate zone training. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You train at a certain percentage of your, to increase maximal fat oxidation, train at 60%, for example, to increase the amount of fat that you're burning. Every time one of those topics comes up on social media, I've written it in a way where they can go to that section of the book and feel Perfect. like they understand that topic fully. So they know if they want to do it or they know if they don't want to do it. So although it's a really boring book title, it's because the book title is just explaining what it is. It's supposed to be a kind of all-encompassing resource. Yeah. And you know, that makes sense to me actually, because those, the other book titles that we were, you were just talking about, those are taking the attention grabbing headlines, the extreme claims and things like that. And everything that you talk about, you know, with living a, taking a balanced approach, you're almost like balancing that out with the title of your book then. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the important things is imagine like either of you have, let's say you have picked 10 different clients, even if all of them come to you for fat loss originally, the reason they want to lose fat is different. Some of them want to improve their health. Some of them want to lose fat for a wedding, whatever. People have different motivations. Some of them prefer certain dietary strategies. Some of them don't. Some people like eating breakfast. Some of them don't. Some of them like doing faster cardio. Some of them don't, whatever. We know that you have to kind of chop and change things to tailor it to the person. And to me, it doesn't really make sense that anyone sells a single dietary strategy as a whole book. The idea that here is the intermittent fasting book for everyone. Here is the keto low carb book for everyone or the Mediterranean diet book for everyone or five, two diet for everyone, whatever it is, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I kind of wanted to just make something that was like the antithesis of that. Mm -hmm. I love yeah, that. Because how much research is there out there on either of those topics, right? Like not enough to warrant an entire book about it. So, th so now, you know, they're starting to put things in there, such as their own personal opinions and their own anecdotes and things like that. And as we know, that doesn't necessarily, it doesn't apply to the general population. One of the ways I summarized it before is 
if you went into a Ford dealership and you asked them what the best car was, they are all going to tell you the benefits of a Ford. And in the diet world, that's really fucking annoying because everyone is trying to tell you the thing they like doing. And people are selling keto books. And of course, they're trying to tell everyone that keto is the best diet. But there's no way that you can tell a whole population of people what the best diet is for everyone. Um, so I feel like the diet world is kind of like a car showroom where everyone is trying to persuade you that their brand is best. Whereas in reality, people like myself or people like you two will say, here are all your options. Here are the different dietary strategies. Here are the things you might want to change. Here are the things you might want to manipulate. Here is what you can do to pick and choose what works for you. And that's uh, that's kind of how I approached it. Put all of the information in one place. And that way, when people read it, they can know the pros and cons of different dietary strategies, different training strategies, and then just think, oh, that actually sounds like something I'd like to do, whether it's calorie counting or how often they weigh themselves or any popular topics. And they can read it and go, actually, that one doesn't sound like it's right for me. This one does. Perfect. It's kind of giving people a menu of options and saying, here are the pros, here are the cons, pick and choose whatever you think works. In in your book, do you talk about uh, personal preference, how, how that impacts um, dietary adherence or anything like that? I have probably talked about personal preference. It's kind of intertwined throughout the whole book. Nice. So say like the dietary interventions chapter, because we're talking about different diets at the moment. So dietary interventions can obviously be broken up into different subgroups. So there are macronutrient-based dietary interventions like high-protein, low-carb, low-fat, mixed macronutrient diets. There are meal timing diets, time-restricted feeding, alternate day fasting, 5-2 diet, variations of the 5-2 diet. Then there are food-focused dietary strategies, things like the paleo diet, the Mediterranean diet, plant-based diets, whatever. And with all of those, what I've done is taken the research on those topics. So for example, here is some research on the Mediterranean diet. Here are reasons it's viewed as health promoting. Here are some, some research pertaining to how the Mediterranean diet fits in with people who want to lose weight. And then at the end, there's a summary of here is how you will use that for your own personal circumstances. Oh, so nice. if you are the type of person who likes this, then maybe it's worth trying this. If you're the type of person that prefers this, maybe it's worth trying this. And the whole way through is very much, a, we all have different personal preferences. We all have different biologies. Some people like eating breakfast. Some people like skipping breakfast. Some people like eating high carbs. Some people like eating high fats, whatever. All of us have different biologies, circumstances, preferences, et cetera. And everything is kind of laid out in a way so you can pick and choose. I like that you have the, you're explaining the diet and how it works and why, but then you're also given the practical guidance there for why this might work for you. Because a lot of people don't realize or understand why they're doing the diets that they're doing, just that it promises 15 pounds of weight loss in a month. So that's, that's powerful. Yeah. So like as, um, as like the most common example, because it's being sold so much at the moment, say intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, the 16-8 diet, people only eating all of their food in an eight-hour window. What I have done is shown research why people find it exciting. Here are several research trials that show when you tell people to avoid food for 16 hours, they tend to eat less, fewer calories over the course of the day. It's not actually groundbreaking when you explain it like that. 
But there are some research trials where even if you tell people to eat the same amount of food, when they eat it in an eight-hour window, they manage to lose more body fat for whatever reason. And when you see those research studies, it's very easy to see how some people can cherry pick them to say, this is why intermittent fasting is magic. Look at this research trial. They ate the same number of calories and they lost more body fat. Everyone should be doing it. And what I've done is said, here is the research that that looks like time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting is beneficial. However, here is the research that those people haven't shown you. When they actually did it in controlled feeding trials where they give people the same amount of food, the fat loss difference between them seemed to vanish. It seems to disappear. So yes, when you tell people that they should eat 2,000 calories a day, if one group of them do time-restricted feeding and the other group don't, the people doing time-restricted feeding might lose a little bit more weight, even though they're supposed to consume the same amount of energy. But the kind of appetite regulation effects of time-restricted feeding often nudges people towards consuming fewer calories than they're told to consume. So there are many trials where people that do time-restricted feeding do lose a little bit more weight or a little bit more body fat. But under the most tightly controlled trials, that seems to vanish to the point that most review papers say intermittent fasting is no better than regular calorie restriction if the calories are the same between groups. And that's kind of like the basic summary. There might be slight differences, but they're so small, it's not worth mentally masturbating over. (laughs) And that is kind of how I've approached the chapter. It's like, some people are going to show you this research, Mm -hmm. but here is another research that says opposite. Mm -hmm. And here is how you would implement that for yourself. So if you're the type of person that isn't hungry in the morning, don't feel like you have to force breakfast down. Doesn't really matter either way. Some people like intermittent fasting, time restricted feeding for these reasons. However, some people hate it for these reasons. So for example, some people anecdotally, when they do time restricted feeding programs, they notice that they end up kind of leaning into this almost like binge eating cycle where they're restricting in the morning, avoiding food. And then they're so hungry that when it gets to the evening, they're eating more than they would have normally. They're one, wiping out the calorie deficit that they imposed by skipping food in the first place. Two, worsening their relationship with food because they're perpetuating this restrict, binge, restrict, binge cycle. So here are some reasons you might want to do it. Here are some reasons you might not want to do it. Be aware of them. Pick it if you want. Don't pick it if you don't want. You're really eliminating any bias right there because you're showing both sides of the research, which, which you know, people in these diet camps don't show you the opposing research. Right. I, yeah, I, I have a I have, part of my theory is right. So in your head, you don't even have to name names because I don't like lawsuits. In your head, <laughs> pick any dietary charlatan and you know that they will say, here are the reasons you should follow this diet. But on social media, loads of people will call that person out and say, actually, that's bullshit. We know that time restricted feeding isn't better or keto is not better or whatever. And what you end up getting is this kind of battle where this person is telling you what you should do. This person is saying that this person's talking bullshit, but the people in the middle are like, I just don't understand. So my theory is if you teach people both arguments, then people are like, ah, I understand why this person is telling me it's great, but I also understand why this person is saying it's shit. And then, like you say, by giving people both sides and being objective, it lets people make their own decisions. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. But our biases are hard to to leave behind us sometimes too. Absolutely. And I think 
I think if you're going to have a bias towards anything, it should be a bias towards helping people. Like if a client came to you and they said, I really like doing this type of diet, or I really like doing this type of training, all of your pre-existing biases are probably going to get thrown out the window. It doesn't matter whether you like doing it or not. If they came to you and said, I really like doing this, as a coach, you would say, that's great. Keep mm -hmm. doing what you're doing. It might not be what I pick. It might not be what I tell anyone else to pick. But I also don't want to change something that you enjoy. And I feel like if you're going to have a bias, that's a good one to have. Mm -hmm. You got to do what works for you ultimately in the end. Correct. Yeah, Correct. Exactly that. When does your book come out? January 29th. Uh, yeah, that's that's the date I've told people. That's the date I have in my head. Beautiful. For ages, it's been 99.9% .9 done. But because I have picked a day, you know how you just want to check something? Oh, yeah. Have you ever made an Instagram post? Well, I, I know you have. You've made an Instagram post and you've watched it back or you've read it back and you're like, there's a fucking spelling mistake in there. Oh, I never noticed that. that. Like, Didn't I fucking read that a million times already? And now I'm catching yeah. it again? Why? And you're like, I, I read that twice. Right. And I knew it was fine. And now there's this really obvious spelling mistake. How did I not see that? Mm -hmm. And when the book is a thousand and one hundred and six thousand words long, it feels like it's it, it feels physically impossible to ever get to the point where I'm like, I know it's fine. I know it's done. Because even if it was done at some point, I still think, let me just check again. I'll check again. I'll read through. And every time I read through, I will find a couple of things that I can change with it. It's like that hyphen, that hyphen shouldn't be there. I'll get rid of the hyphen. But it's, it's got to the point where I can spend literally 12 hours reading through it and I can find four hyphens I want to change. So you're you're saving yourself from yourself, essentially, with the self-imposed deadline then. Like, I just got to do this. Yeah, I mean, at some point, it's kind of like, I'm just, I'm going to have to, I'll put it out there. And yeah. the funny thing was, when I, I put on my Instagram stories, like, I'm looking out for hyphens and I'm doing proofreading. And... I received so many messages from people who are like professionals in the industry. Like I work in publishing, I'm a proofreader, I'm a copy editor or an editor or whatever. And every single person who told me they worked in publishing or if they were an author, all of them said, you are going to find spelling mistakes. And I was like, wait, what? Surely that's not the case. I, I, I expected professionals to say, here is how you make sure you don't get spelling mistakes. And everyone who is a professional said, no, 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 you will. Like when you have that many words, doesn't matter how many people you get looking at it. At some point, you will find a spelling mistake that your eyes just glossed over, over and over again. So um, that's why I just kind of have to kick the metaphorical bird out of the nest at some point. Totally. Yeah. That makes sense too, because if you think about when we're talking with our clients and with uh, social everybody on social media, like we we don't want them fussing over those small details like that. Like, please just go out and start doing something, throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. And don't worry about those perfectionist details, right? The funny thing, it's such a good parallel. If someone came to you and said, look, I'm not sure, like, should I train four times a week or five times a week? Does it matter if my, my workout is 60 minutes long or like 50 minutes long? You would say, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Right. Mm -hmm. Do something and it doesn't have to be perfect because at some point you're going to spend a kind of disproportionate amount of effort trying to make it perfect and your return on investment starts declining i'm way past that point like my return on investment has got to the point where i think it's hit a ceiling or it's so slow it's, it's even hard to kind of quantify but it's it's hard to get it's hard to kind of escape that because i have 
a certain level of anxiety of asking people to give me their money. And I want it to be so perfect that I'm obsessing over details that I would tell people they should stop obsessing over. No, no one's really going to care if there's a misplaced hyphen. But in my head, I don't want them to find a misplaced hyphen to begin with when they've paid me $25. Your baby and you've worked hard on it. So, I mean, I'd be the same way for sure. Yeah, it's stressful. I feel like it shaved five years off my life. I mean, how many hours would you guesstimate that you've had, that you've put into it? Oh, mate, I can't. <laughs> no, can't even. Your brain's fried. I take that question back. <laughs> All right. Imagine in the last two days, I was editing from about 8 a.m. until 1 a.m. And I've been doing, I've been working on it kind of part time for three years. So, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so many hours that if I calculated it, I would probably cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the better question would have been, how long have you really been working on this in three years? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like too many hours, too many Three hours. years going on 30 probably. But the thing is, right, I think if you, if I said, how many hours have you spent making social media content? You'd be like, oh my God, that's so long. Yeah. And part of this for me is I've been making social media content for like coming up on 14 years now. I think how many hours have I put into that? Just trying to give people good information, trying to help people that... I'm like, this is actually a resource that could make a real difference to a kind of different industry, not our little social media bubble of people that kind of follow us and share our posts, but trying to infiltrate the very terrible weight loss book industry. And I feel like it's a bit of a gamble to spend that long working on something, but I feel like if it pays off, I'll be really happy that I took that gamble, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it will pay off. <laughs> we, we are excited for it. I have no doubt. So. Yeah. Awesome. Ben, we, we really appreciate you coming on today. We are really excited for your book, Everything Fat Loss. Um, so it's coming out January 29th. Yeah. Where can people learn about um, you, uh, your book, and, and find more information about it? I post loads of free stuff on social media, just like you two do. So if people are if people are listening to this, if they're on Instagram or TikTok, my username is BDC Carpenter. And you can find me there. That's where all the free free magic happens. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. definitely follow Ben. He's got amazing definitely. for sure. Thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for anyone listening. You. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So why not share with a friend who needs to hear it? Send us a DM on Instagram or email us at cutthecrappod at gmail.com and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cutthecrappodcast. As always, we appreciate you and thank you.